With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lockaway channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pampers Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you, thank you, thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. Hello there. Welcome back to Latina to Latina. On this podcast, I talk to Latinas about their success, their struggles, and what it takes to be truly great. Natalie Molina Nino launched her first startup when she was just 20 years old. And since then, she's continued to find new ways to build businesses that benefit women. She's the CEO of Brava Investments, and she has a new book out. It's called Leapfrog, The New Revolution for Women Entrepreneurs. Natalie, I'm so glad to finally meet you. I am so glad to meet you. Did you grow up knowing about money? Oh, gosh. It's funny because when you put it that way, yeah, I suppose so, but not the way that you might think, right? I think that There are people who grow up knowing about money in terms of how to use it, save it, you know, all these good positive things. I, coming from immigrant parents who were always struggling, who were entrepreneurial, and a whole family that had intermingled businesses, I was very aware of money, but I was aware of the lack of it. I was aware of the hustle, of how we were going to pay this and barter for that, and Are we going to be able to pay the bills this month? Do we need to think about alternatives? So I was very aware of money. So then how did you actually learn about money, earning it, investing it, spending it? Trial and error. I have to say, a story that I sometimes tell about people thinking that my first startup at 20, you know, being somewhat of an amazing thing for a 20-year-old to do, although I think a lot of 20-year-olds can and should do it, is that the first big check that my partners and I got, we went and bought a house that had been reclaimed by a bank in cash. And then for the next three months, till the next quarterly payment came from this client, we ate Top Ramen because (laughs) we spent all of our money on this house that because it had been reclaimed by the bank, 
it was in the middle of a remodel. They had stripped it down to the studs. It didn't even have stairs to get from one floor to the other. There were ladders that were just makeshift. And it was in the mountains in Colorado. This was when I was in Boulder, Colorado in, in school. So we had a skeleton of a house that we now owned and nothing to eat with. <laughs> so that's how I learned. I learned by making stupid mistakes um, and just sort of bumbling my way through and figuring out how not to do it. How did your family talk about money? You know, first of all, we talked about it very openly. It was very different from families that I hear about all the time who talk about how, you know, topics of politics and money are sort of not okay dinner table conversation. That is all we talked about at our dinner table. And, you know, how we talked about it was pretty unfiltered. There was no shielding the kids from the problems and the challenges and the dilemmas and the solutions about how we were going to, you know, make ends meet. It was very much almost a collaborative effort where even as I got older, it became a question of including me in the conversation of whether we can really afford that Catholic school or whether we're going to have to do something else, whether my mom who's working part-time at a company in order to get us benefits so that we have health insurance and we have these basic things, does she need to switch to full-time in order to afford this new school that we want to put Natalie into, right? I think a lot of families shield their parents from that. I was I was deep in the trenches of those conversations. Growing up, did you think that success was money, that money equated success? That's interesting. Yes and no. I think that I received that message from the world around me. But in my house, I definitely received alternative messages. My dad lived in the United States for 40 years. Where is he from? Ecuador. My mother's from Colombia. And so the moment that they got divorced, the first thing my dad did when he was writing the sort of path in his life, it was to go back. So my dad lives back in Ecuador, and he was very anti-assimilationist, right? We were Spanish-only home. It was at a time when a lot of my friends who were Latino were being encouraged not to speak Spanish. Los Angeles is very different from the East Coast. It's very different from Miami, for example. And not in my house. In my house, it was Spanish-only. In my family, it was Spanish-only. And I think in my house, there were a lot of sort of counterintuitive messages. There was this awareness that outside the house, I was getting one message. And inside the house, I was going to get another. And, you know, one of those messages was about money. The other messages were around culture. My dad was adamant that I not sort of drink the Kool-Aid in the news, right? I remember him telling me, for example, that while Fidel, who was being maligned everywhere is actually sending troops to South Africa to fight apartheid. The U.S. is selling Coca-Cola to apartheid South Africa. And I wasn't seeing that in the news. I wasn't hearing that story. And he was taking and giving me clippings from Le Monde in Paris and from the newspapers in Latin America, showing me these alternative narratives, right? And the same thing is true, I think, with money and success. They knew what messages I was getting outside. And so in the home, it was about being kind it was about building relationships. It was about family coming first. And it was really a whole lot of messages that I think, in hindsight now, were very much like a campaign to counter what they knew I was getting elsewhere. Where, then, does your entrepreneurial drive come from? Partly it comes from my family. I definitely come from multiple generations of entrepreneurs, especially on my dad's side, on the Ecuadorian side, which are working-class entrepreneurial family. So I definitely would say part of my entrepreneurial drive comes from family and my roots. But the other part of it is just my need for freedom. 
I thought that I was going to be a scientist who was going to save the environment. When I studied environmental engineering, that was my plan, right? And then I realized that scientists get fired. Not only that, scientists get midway through massive research studies that are in fact going to save the world and then some bureaucrat somewhere (laughs) decides to cut the funding off of that project and boom, that project is over. And so I saw and I experienced some of those things and I thought, wait a second, that's not freedom the way that I envisioned freedom to be. And so I think I sort of accidentally, in some ways, gravitated towards entrepreneurship, but it was always because of that, because I needed to feel like I could control my own destiny. What was the biggest defining moment of your 20s? The biggest defining moment was a moment that outwardly would look pretty quiet, and I don't know that anybody would have noticed it, but it was potentially catastrophic for me, and it was at 26 years old, finding myself running a multinational. Wait. Not a business person, so that means? A large corporation with offices all over the world. In our case, we had offices in 16 countries at the time. Stepping in to solve a really high-profile problem. We had a situation with one of the biggest tech companies in the world, our customer, where we had been so far delayed in delivering a product to them. We were in the business of taking software and making it work in Hebrew, Arabic, Japanese, Chinese. We were globalization of tech. And we were so late delivering this product that this massive technology company was actually late in taking the product to market because of us. We were so far behind and we had so screwed up this project that they were suing us or threatening to sue us. Four people had tried to step in and fix the problem. Four people had failed. I was the last ditch effort to come in and fix this. So I went to Dublin for many months. I lived in Dublin. I did the thing that I knew how to do, which is to rally the troops, bring everyone in the room, fly people from all over. It was like I was sleeping in a cot in the office. People were flying in from all over. They were working nights, weekends. And we finally got to the point at the end where we had righted the ship. The project was on its way. Customer was happy. I was day job working, you know, with the group, uh, my team, and then night job going out and taking my clients out to drink and make them happy. Bottom line is everything was good, and we were finally at a place where we were going to deliver the files. And on the day that we were meant to deliver the files, super complicated, it required an engineer, many passwords, all sorts of complicated processes. The one guy on the team who knew how to deliver the files, that last thing that we had to do, (laughs) calls in sick. And at 26 years old, all I knew in terms of how to manage a business and how to function was what I had seen and what I had seen modeled to me in the male-dominated world of tech. And I knew that as a woman, as a Latina, I had to do that. Plus, if they were hard, I had to be harder. If they were cutthroat, I had to be more cutthroat. And so this thing happens, and I say to my team, go to his house, bring him in the office by whatever means necessary, and have him teach three other people how to do this so that we don't have this dependency ever again. So that's what happens. They bring him into the office. He trains three other people on how to do this. We have a short delay, but at the end of the day, we're back on track. Files are getting delivered. This is now a multi-day process where we're going to spend delivering all of these files. And as far as I'm concerned, the day was saved. Things worked out. Following day, in the morning, we're having this sort of daily check-in with the team. And somebody walks into the meeting, interrupts me, and says, Natalie, Natalie, Stephen called in sick again. And before she's even finished with the breath, I interrupt her and say, I don't care. It's irrelevant. We have three other people who can deliver the files now. Basically, bug off, right? And she kind of gets the courage to continue her sentence because I interrupted her mid-sentence. And she goes, 
What I was trying to tell you is that Stephen called in sick again from the cardiac ward. And it occurred to me, like everything that I mentioned earlier about being raised, prioritizing family and kindness and being a good human being and all of the things that I had obviously forgotten sort of raced back into my head and I realized I'm 26 years old. In the eyes of people from the outside, I'm on top of the world. My career is going really well and I have become a monster. I have put profits over the life of a human being and I didn't even see it. And I remember taking the rest of the day off, spending the entire rest of the day until nightfall walking around Dublin and just sort of reflecting on what I had become and how I'd lost my way. It's not how I was raised. It's not how I was told to live in the world. You were modeling. Yeah. I was. I mean, that's an easy way out, right? That's it's an easy way out, but I do think you're underlining something really important, which is that women leaders very often don't step into their own brand of leadership they replicate mm-hmm. a brand of leadership that has been defined by men. Absolutely. And because we have to get ahead by playing that game and playing it better and being perfect, I think we think that we have to one-up that model. And I, I, and I can't speak for others, but I, I thought that, right? And I wish I could tell you that that day in 2003 was a turning point and I had this epiphany and everything's just magically resolved itself, but... I think a more honest version of that is that I saw the monster, I saw the sort of shadow side, I saw what I was capable of, and I cannot get rid of the fact that I am ambitious and that I am driven. That's not something that I can do, or if I would, I wouldn't be me. And so the project since then has just been about being aware that that's there, that that's possible, and that I choose not to go there, right? But knowing that in my moments of weakness, I will default to that um, because that's how I grew up my early adult life. That's what I learned. And so it's about constantly hearing that voice or feeling that tendency and remembering that that's not the path. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads, what did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blowout barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Pamper Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size eight, and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important, and it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. 
Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer, M&M's for all fun kind. Before you launched Brava, you researched the portfolio companies of funds that focus on women. Mm. What did you find? <laughs> I'll say this, first of all. I did that in 2015, 2016. It's now towards the end of 2018. We've seen some shifts in the market. Not enough. But what I found in 2015 and 2016 was a lot of disappointing things. One of them is I found that most of those funds that focused on women were led by women, and most of them set out to raise $100 million, $50 million, whatever, some ambitious amount. And actually, if we're honest, not that ambitious, because there are plenty of first-time fund managers that start with numbers like that. And none of them had achieved the goal. They had all settled on a $10 million fund, a $20 million fund, a $30 million fund, because they just weren't able to get there. The second thing I observed was that when I looked at the portfolio companies that they were investing in and who the founders were, the women were doing the exact same thing that the men in Silicon Valley do and that we complain about, pattern matching, that they only invest in people who look like them. So what we had was about 10 or 15 years worth of women-led funds that were only investing in white women. And the numbers prove that out, right? People talk about how terrible it is that we went from 5% venture capital going to women now to 2.5. The numbers are going the opposite direction. But most people don't talk about the fact that 0.2% goes to women of color. And that's a horrible number, but there are tons of excuses that you can make for why that might be. Maybe a pipeline problem, maybe, you know, readiness, maybe all sorts of things. But there is literally no excuse for that number when you think about the fact that women are starting more companies than men in the United States, and that eight out of every 10 women-owned business is started by a woman of color. So the single most entrepreneurial community in this country is getting 0.2% of the capital to grow their businesses, right? There's no reason for that. And so when I looked at what was happening in the space of investing in women and saw that they weren't actually tackling this problem at all, in fact, they were perpetuating it, I realized that I needed to take a different approach. I needed to take a much more systemic approach at taking that incredible group of already very entrepreneurial women and build systems to help them get out of survival mode, right? Right, because I think one of the things I misunderstood about Brava Investments, because I was going with what one would assume when you hear, like, woman positive, is that it's all woman-owned, where really what you're looking for is companies that in some way improve the lives of women or benefit women. How do you define that? Economically benefit women, meaning, and I'm super cutthroat about this, show me the money. If you can prove to me that your model is putting money into the wallets of a large swath of women, not five women, not two founders, not even 100 women in a factory, but your model is designed to put more money into the wallets of hopefully hundreds of thousands of women, if not millions of women, 
then that's the sort of business that I want to be invested in, whether it's founded by a man or a woman. Can you talk me through, as someone who doesn't come from this world, how this all works? Like what it means to have a fund, what it means to be a company that comes to a fund and asks for that funding, and what the expectation is of return on that investment? I'll tell you the, and I, I hate to use the word traditional, but I guess at this point it's become that, the traditional sort of venture capital model, right, which I'm not particularly fond of. Having been exposed to venture capital my entire adult life, I know what that's like, and I don't like the dynamic that it creates. People like Peter Thiel, for example, use a strategy that's called spray and pray, right, where you, say, have a 100 companies you invest in all hundred of them in small chunks, which means you spray the money far and wide, right? And then you pray that one, two, three of them become a unicorn a la Google, a la whatever, Warby Parker. And the rest fall by the wayside. Either they go bankrupt and they disappear or they just putter along and they don't provide the sort of returns that an investor like this needs because given that you're making all of your returns on the few exceptions, they have to make up for the millions of dollars that were invested in the others that went nowhere. So anything short of a billion dollar exit is a disappointment in that context, right? I have a concern about that model because I don't think that that's how you build societies. You do not build societies by, (laughs) you know, having a single digit success rate, right? You don't run a business by having an 80, 90% fail rate. And more importantly, it creates an environment where the only people who can play this game are the ones who have no problem going bankrupt because they have family wealth and they have trust funds and they have safety nets that make bankruptcy just a bump in the road. Whereas you and I know that in a country where the majority of families do not have $5,000 in their savings account, bankruptcy is devastating. Let's talk about your book because your book sort of looks at it from the flip, which Mm -hmm. is someone who is starting a company and wants, needs capital. Mm -hmm. You have a series of what you call hacks, Mm -hmm. um, and I want to walk through a few of them. Number 30, (laughs) start scrappy, stay scrappy. Yeah. One of my friends, Nellie Galan, who's featured in the book, uh, loves that one uh, because I think that Women, especially women of color, do not need to be told how to be scrappy. I mean, the reality is, is as I mentioned before, right, most businesses that are starting today are started by women of color. However, 98% of them are stuck at the less than $1 million a year in revenue mark. So we have challenges scaling, right? And the thing is, is once we do scale, um, and this is broadly for any entrepreneur, I think that the muscle for being scrappy starts to atrophy a little, right? And we get the beautiful car and we get the nice house and we start to sort of, you know, um, enjoy the fruits of our labor when, in fact, there is something to be said for staying scrappy. When I started Brava, the example that I give is I thought, you know what? People are dying to get time with investors all the time. I can think of multiple sites in New York that would be happy to give me free office space in exchange for being like the investor in residence or something like that and giving like a couple of hours of my time a week or a month in exchange for having office space and also being in a community that probably is fun and thriving. 
I thought about things like that, even though could I afford office space? Yes, I could. But this mentality of not just starting scrappy and then letting that muscle atrophy, but staying that way, I think is what keeps you fresh and it keeps you thriving. And it allows you to be like Nina Vaca, who now owns the fastest growing woman-owned company in the United States and is about to hit a billion dollars in revenue. And guess what? She never took a penny of outside capital. Right, because you're a big proponent of avoiding that for as long as possible. As long as possible. And if your model and if your growth is sustainable, where you can avoid it altogether, like Nina, even better. Um, Which I know is weird coming from an investor, but the reality is, is we don't talk about the dark side of getting investment, right? Equity investment means you're giving away chunks of your company, which means you're also giving away control. And in many cases, because I'm not even going to lie and say that it's only infrequently. In many cases, you lose control of your company and you give people the right to fire you from your own business. So unless you're ready to go down that path, don't take equity investing. There are other forms of capital in the form of, especially, I talk a lot about this, I talk about embracing debt, loans, lines of credit, my hands are sweating. I know. I <laughs> but know. I was told to avoid the debt. Well, especially the Latino community, right? Deuda. I mean, debt is a thing you work to get out of, right? But the reality is, is venture capital is really expensive, not just because of the terms that you're getting, but because of the ownership stake that you're giving up, right? Lines of credits are there, and there are products that are actually really favorable to owners that have good terms, unlike the horrible student loans that most of us have been subjected to. There is such thing as good debt, and it's necessary debt. And people often don't hear this, but there is such thing as a balanced capital stack, meaning that you have different capital coming from different sources that is applicable for the right thing. So, for example, venture capital is not the right kind of capital to use to pay and make your payroll that month. That is not what it's for. Venture capital is to help your company grow exponentially. A line of credit is a more appropriate source of capital to get you through that lean month where you need a little help paying payroll, right? And people need to embrace those sorts of capital because it's the difference between scaling your company or staying small. And I think it's really important that people understand these dynamics because what you end up having is right now there's so much excitement about getting women and people of color venture capital that what's going to happen is in 10 years, somebody's going to look back, they're going to see that they all had unbalanced capital stack. They were using VC money for things they shouldn't have. That's going to translate into a bunch of companies failing. Some happy analyst is going to look back at those numbers someday and see that women and people of color have a higher rate of failure. And I guarantee you that they are not going to blame an unbalanced capital stack. Number 20, find your Dolores Huerta. The story that Gloria Steinem tells about Dolores Huerta is that when they were younger and, you know, the protests around, for example, the grape boycott and all these things were happening, Dolores would call Gloria before she arrived, for example, in New York. And she would use Gloria as like her advanced team. She would say, OK, Gloria, I'm coming. I'm bringing these people. I need you to set up a press conference. I need you to call the governor. I need you to do X, Y, and Z. And young, just barely getting her sea legs, Gloria would go, who the hell does this woman think I am? That I can just like pick up the phone and call the governor and set up the... But Dolores just assumed and saw in Gloria that she could do those things before even Gloria could see that she could do those things. And when I heard that story, I realized that Catherine Colbert is my Dolores Huerta. She saw in me way beyond what I thought I was capable of. And I realized that 
that's not mentorship. That's not sponsorship. That's not lean in. Like that is somebody who literally looks at you and sees something that is so much bigger than anything that you could have ever imagined. And if you are anything like me and so many ambitious women, what you do in the face of that is you step into it and you become what people think you can be, right? And I think everyone needs at least one of those. And that's really kind of what that hack is about. Okay, here's the last one. Number 22, don't wait for folks to get woke. (laughs) Maggie Lena Walker is the first woman in the United States to run a bank. And it happened before women got the right to vote. It happened before the civil rights movement. It happened in 1902. And Maggie Lena Walker was a black woman. And she was a product of that whole amazing, promising thing that was happening in Black Wall Street at the time, right? That eventually got burned down and systemically killed. But what she was a product of was something that one of the leapfroggers in the book, Trabian Shorters, talks about, which is mutual benefit societies. Organizations that in the face of the Black community being locked out of banking, of insurance companies, of all these different things that a thriving economy needs, they built their own. And they created these mutual benefit societies where they thereby, you know, with those alliances, were able to build their own insurance companies and banks and all these different things. Magdalena Walker was a product of that. And what Trabian is advocating for and talking about in that hack is revisiting that idea of a mutual benefit society. When the system locks us out, when venture capitalists take and put 0.2% of their money into women of color, then it's time for us to make like Maggie Lena Walker and build our own systems. We cannot wait for people to give us what we're entitled to. We have to build it ourselves. I can't think of a better note to go out on. Thank you so much, Natalie. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Hey, one of the best ways to support us, besides telling everyone you know about us, is by listening on the Radio Public app. When you listen there, we get paid. And the app's tip button lets you leave us a tip of any amount up to $100. Major shout out and thank you to the individuals who left us our first two tips. We promise to spend it wisely. Thanks for joining us today. Latina to Latina was originally co-created with Bustle. Now the podcast is executive produced by Juleka Lentigua-Williams and me. Amita Ganatra was the sound designer on this episode. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. Send us ideas for guests or talk to us about what's on your mind right now. Remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. And please leave a review. We love hearing from you. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.